You'll turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to read Matthew 21, the first 11 verses. I believe it's page 827 on the Pew Bibles. This is the Palm Sunday text. And so we are entering a new stage in Matthew's gospel. We've been going through this week after week. And really what you see here is Jesus taking the gloves off. He is, he's no longer going to hide. He's marching proudly into Jerusalem, uh, saying, I am God's king. Do to me what you will. And that, it's a, this is just an otherworldly picture. And I confess, as I was trying to get rid of it, go, get rid of it, get rid of <laughs> Here's my head. You can't get rid of this picture in your head. Here we go. We'll try and fix that. No, try, there's so many different themes in Scripture. And just the good stories of good kings, that it's so hard to, to touch on everything. This is just an astounding picture of who Jesus is. And so we're just going to scratch the surface this morning. And so let's read it, and then we'll pray. Uh, this is God's Word. Now, when they drew to Jerusalem near to Jerusalem, and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And this is God's word. It is true, trustworthy, and given in love. Let's pray together. <coughs> Our Father and our God, uh, so often in, in trying to better understand your kindness to us, uh, we forget that Jesus is a king and that we are uh, your humble servants. And so I pray this morning as we see Jesus meek and mild coming to serve us, we would once again be moved to worship uh, a ruling and reigning king who laid down his life in love so that we might live with him. So teach us that kind of gospel humility this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to do my best. We'll see how long my voice lasts. <laughs> this is a Palm Sunday passage. It's familiar to many of you. Uh, and part of it, the problem when you come to a familiar passage is you just go, okay, I know this. And so I know that when I read these things, I'm not as uncomfortable as I'm meant to be. And so I'm going to to stop and look at it from a distance. What Jesus did here, climbing on a donkey, was so infuriating it got him killed. 
Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, sitting on the back of a, of a young male donkey. It got him killed. And it, him climbing on the back of the donkey, it's a symbolic act. It's meant to teach. It's meant to show us who Jesus is. And it's also a divisive symbolic act, meaning there are those there who are worshiping and there are those there grinding their teeth who can't wait to kill him. And, it, and we know who know the rest of the story, that same crowd that praises him also try, says we want to kill him. Because when you, when you get to see the real Jesus, he's in our face. He's a king and he doesn't hide it. And so the, the closest modern day symbol I could come up with that gives that kind of guttural reaction uh, to, to just a symbolic act, just a gesture, is kneeling during the national anthem. I mean, it's a symbolic act. Colin Kaepernick, I mean, you can you hear his words. He says, I love my country, but I hate her injustice. She is beautiful, but she is sick. Something has to change. And he says, I have great respect for those who serve. I have friends who've gone and fight, fought. They fight for liberty and justice for everyone. That's just not happening. People are dying in vain. Something has to change. So he kneels rather than sits during the national anthem. Right? And... I know as soon as I say that, there are some of you that just, that just makes you mad. Because no matter how much conversation, there are other group of people who are just offended. You know, that uh, They see the kneeling and hear, don't hear love and see love for country. They see hate. Right? That's the kind of reaction you're supposed to get when you see Jesus riding on a donkey. Right? Uncomfortable. Because he's claiming something that is bigger then we, we can get our minds wrapped around to be king of the universe, to, to make a claim on you and me. And so let's look at it. What is Jesus telling us about himself? <coughs> right? what, what kind of things is he telling us about what kind of king he is? And we've got three things. He's our cosmic king, he's our gentle king, and he also will be, is and will be our future king. And so look at it, his first point, behold, see your cosmic king who comes. And if you look at the context, this is amazing. I, never, I had never thought about this before. Right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he's in Jericho, this town that's not too far from, it's a, several miles outside of Jerusalem, and he's surrounded by crowds, and you have these two blind men in the midst of the crowds that are driving everyone crazy. They're saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And they just keep shouting. They won't, they won't be quiet. They, they won't stop. And everyone just tells them to, to shut it, and Jesus won't let them. And to everyone's surprise, right, Jesus just responds with, yes, what would you like me to do for you? <laughs> and you've got to think about this. Every time anybody has accurately named Jesus for who he is as the Messiah, Jesus said, shh, don't tell anyone. But here... Right before coming into Jerusalem, they call him son of David, the one true king. And Jesus says, yes, you rang. <laughs> He's owning it. Right? So you've got to ask, who is the son of David? Why is this a big deal? Well, the son of David was the title, a name, for God's promised king. <coughs> the one who would fix everything that is wrong with the world. The one who would crush evil. Uh, the one who would renew all things. Uh, he would be a son of David, the good king in Israel's past. He is God's 
Messiah. And the Messiah is just a title for God's rescuer king. And so everybody is surprised, I imagine, when Jesus hears them call him by name, son of David, and Jesus says, yes, I am him. I am God's king. I'm the one who's promised I am going to Jerusalem now to, to confront evil. And it gets better. You start to fill in the pictures. We're going to do a lot of Old Testament because this is what makes this such an amazing passage. Because in the verse 1, it says they stopped in the Mount of Olives. And that's not a small detail. <coughs> the Mount of Olives is outside the city. It's higher than Jerusalem. And so picture this great panoramic, spectacular view of Jerusalem that Jesus could see. And in Zechariah 14, it was promised that when God comes to conquer evil, he's going to start from that mountain, the Mount of Olives, the day that when God's going to rescue his people and oppressors, the bullies, will no longer win. Salvation from the Lord comes from the Mount of Olives. And it's from here that Jesus says, all right, let's do this donkey thing. And he starts making all the arrangements for his own victory parade. And so just picture all the great stories you know in your mind when the one true king comes home and all is not well in the kingdom and he has this great love for the kingdom, but he knows he has work to do. That's what Jesus is, is doing right here. You know, it's like the good King Richard coming home to kick, to kick out the sheriff of Nottingham. Right? There's, there's something wrong. <coughs> and so then Jesus does this thing with the donkey. He tells his disciples, go find the donkey. Make sure you grab the colt. It's probably prearranged, but they basically just show up and take a donkey. And tell, they tell everyone, well, the Lord needs them. And uh, this is just an astounding picture of Jesus' authority. Just feel the weight of it. It's almost like King Jesus is just snapping his finger and summoning his beast, a burden. Right? And the disciples obey. That makes it happen. This is Jesus, the Lord of the livestock, the Lord of creation. <coughs> and even more astounding, because this just keeps filling in the picture, is I think Jesus, Jesus is doing this deliberately. I think when it says this is to fulfill the prophecy of old from Zechariah, right? say to the people of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, that your king is coming, I think Jesus is telling the disciples this. The reason you are getting that donkey is because I am fulfilling the scriptures right now. Right? So what King Jesus is doing is he's setting up his own dramatic entrance into Jerusalem, the holy city. God's king is here, the cosmic king. And you picture it, it's like he whistles for the donkey, it comes, and along with the donkey comes loads of crowds. He's bringing, you know, it's... It's kind of like our inaugurations, right? You know, the, the hall is just filled with people. Jesus has called for the crowds. The crowds come with a donkey. They know that something big's about to happen. <coughs> and so there is a very real sense where you have Jesus standing from afar, orchestrating all the circumstances to walk into Jerusalem, not walk, sit right on this donkey into Jerusalem, and he summoned both the animal and the crowds, all to fulfill the scriptures. And the crowds know this. 
They know the stories because the other place it says, Say to the daughter of Zion is a story from Isaiah 62. And it says, Rejoice, your salvation is coming with him. No longer will you be the city that's forgotten. You are not going to be the city that's forsaken. This is good news, and it's this whole thing is setting up a, a giant party because God's king is here, and things are going to change. That's all wrapped up in the donkey. <laughs> and that, that's hard to get that across, but this is Jesus with all of his authority as the king orchestrating this. And so the point is, <coughs> Jesus will not let you miss out on the fact that he is God's chosen king, to rule over the nations. Zechariah 9.10, his rule will be from sea to sea. It's right after the donkey passage. This is a cosmic king. He has unparalleled authority and power and majesty and honor. You know, all the stories of the good king coming home find their fulfillment in him. And so really what Jesus is doing, he's walking into the city And he's turning to the religious authorities and saying, you have to crown me as your king or you have to kill me. You decide. I'm the cosmic king. This is provocative, is it not? He's saying, I'm your king. He's not just talking to the people of old. This is a picture of what was promised for the world, which includes us. Jesus is saying, you are mine. I've come for you. I'm going to fix what's wrong with the world. Submit to me. That's a big claim, especially in America. We have no king, right? Don't tread on me. And yet Jesus says, you have to deal with this claim. All right, and, and so what I find here challenging, this is jarring, it's just the boldness of Jesus to walk in and say, I know this is going to kill me. But also his power to summon the crowds, to summon the donkey, in order to bring about world peace. That's the promise. All right. So, now what does the crowd think? That's the question. <laughs> They're celebrating. <coughs> the crowd must have assumed, based on Zechariah, that when God's king came, all the bullies were going to get what was coming to them. Because that was the promise. They must have assumed that the streets of Jerusalem were going to run red with the blood of the Romans that Jesus was going to use that power for them to make their kingdom. Because in Zechariah 9, it paints a picture of God coming, setting up camp in Jerusalem and ensuring that no other bullies would ever win the day again because God loves his people that much. Now, what's the point? What is Jesus really after here? I mean, this is hard because this is a story. It's just telling you what happened. But I think this is where it confronts us modern people even us as Christians. I think our Jesus is just too small. I know he is for me. Maybe it's the familiar, familiarity, or I, know, I talk about grace all the time. This, this is a king of grace. He comes down, he's just like us. He wants to be our friend. Um, he is a servant. But before he is our friend and our servant and our older brother and a good shepherd and all these beautiful pictures, Jesus says, I came to be king, and you have to submit to me. (coughs) And he is 
claiming power, really, just by climbing on a donkey over all of creation, which includes me. And so this is the idea, is, is he won't let you be neutral about him. You can just say, oh, he's a nice guy, he's a good teacher. He's saying, no, you have to, reje- you have to accept me as your king or reject me, but with the same fire and fury as the crowds of old. Crown me or crucify me, your choice. And that's in our face. <laughs> Could you bring me that bottle of water, Jeff? Oh, thank you. Thanks for planning ahead. <laughs> and you know, the, the hard part for us as I think about this, it's just so hard to see. Because we know it in our heads and it's just familiar, and Jesus does what he does because he's Jesus. I grew up with Jesus in the church. And one of the things that challenges me is a great scene in the movie The Hobbit. All right, for those of you who aren't nerds with me, all right, The Hobbit is a children's story about the, a dwarven kingdom, dwarves. One of whom, Thorin, is the king, and the dwarves lost their kingdom. A dragon came and, and kicked them out and took their treasure. And so the story is this grand adventure to reclaim the kingdom, to get Thorin back his throne. And to help them to defeat the dragon, they hire Bilbo Baggins, a little hobbit, this little creature is a little person who doesn't like adventures. He likes food, he likes farming, he likes safe places. But he goes out, and while they're out in the beginnings of this adventure, it's dark, there's noise, and some of the younger dwarves start pranking Bilbo and say, maybe it's the bad guys, they're out there, the orcs, these creatures, just trying to scare them. And their king, Thorin, just bites their head off in anger, saying, that's not funny. And they have no idea what to do with that. And one of the other dwarves said, well, let me tell you about Thorin Oakenshield. It's a great name. All right? He got his name in the heat of battle. This massive battle, Thorin watches his grandfather be beheaded by this massive evil general. His father disappears. And in the middle of the leaderless, messy battle, young Thorin steps up in leadership to face down this huge orc. And he loses his shield, and the only thing he can find is this giant oak branch. And you can see it, he's getting railed on and railed on. And, and eventually, Thorin wins the day, he cuts off the arm, and it seems like the work is dead. And the most astounding thing happens when that story is done being told. I didn't even do it justice. While everybody was sitting before the story, at the end, they look at their king, and everyone is standing. Because the guy telling the story says, well, I was there. When I looked over and saw my king, I thought to myself then, (coughs) there's someone I could follow. There's someone I could call king. And all of a sudden, for the first time, all these people who've been around their king for years see that there's a hidden majesty, a hidden strength, a hidden boldness, and it just took them a while to see it. And that's what we as Christians have to fight against. For, new, for those who don't know Jesus, this is already in your face. You know, submitting to Jesus, letting someone tell me what to do, that's foreign. But what Jesus, as cosmic king, he claims you. Crown me or crucify me. What do you do with that? <laughs> it sounds like I'm going to cry at any moment, but I, I'm not. 
<laughs> but if I do, it's because of Jesus, not because of the cold. <laughs> Here's the second point. This cosmic king, this powerful king, he comes in gentleness. And you have three contrasts here that are, are jarring. You see this great king Jesus come down off the mountain, the place of power. And he doesn't ride a war horse. He's not charging with a sword drawn. He's not screaming for the blood of his enemies. He's riding on a, a goofy-looking animal, <laughs> a donkey. Not even a full-grown donkey, right? Probably like that awkward teenage stage donkey, a young male. <laughs> Something where his feet might have been able to drag along the ground. Right, and Shrek helps us know how silly this is, right? The donkeys, he called me noble steed. <laughs> Nobody calls me noble steed. Because right? donkeys are not this awe-inspiring creature. They're not threatening. And if you were to step into any battle in history riding a donkey, you're just dead meat. It looks dumb. Right? I mean, picture a donkey and a soldier riding on the beaches of Normandy. You're not going to make it. And yet Jesus, in all of his claims to bring world peace, this is his means for doing so. It's in the humility of riding on the back of a donkey. And he's both saying, I am king. Things have to change. But I'm going to change things through my weakness. And that is otherworldly. <coughs> I mean, you see how crazy this looks? <laughs> Infinite greatness but the humility to ride a donkey, to holding two things together that we, we don't know how to do, to be bold and gentle at the same time. This is your king, the one who will remove the warlike spirit from your heart through his weakness. And it looks nuts. I mean, it looks like Francis of Assisi. You remember Francis? He's pretty famous, a poor monk in the 13th century. He embodied this later on as he took a vow of, of poverty. He's a monk, and in the middle of the Crusades, right, fought with the sword. Battles being fought in Egypt. He sails purposely on a ship as the chaplain to cross enemy lines to preach the gospel to the sultan while everyone else is fighting with swords. <coughs> and it looks crazy. He walked unarmed across enemy lines, was captured, beaten, and tortured just to earn the right to be heard. Right. They said, nobody does this. You must be a spy. And he says, no. I just want you to know about Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, who's come to save your soul, because you're, you will never be good enough to please this God. You need a Savior. It looks nuts. Where do you think he got that idea? An imitation of his king who went weaponless to battle against evil into Jerusalem. And you know what? This was promised. The donkey has so many connections in the Old Testament. This is Genesis 49, where it says there's going to be a king who's going to do this. He's going to ride on a donkey. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to this king shall be the obedience of the peoples, right? So all nations. 
Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And what Genesis promised long ago is a great king's going to come. He's going to be a son of Judah, where David came from. So you can follow the family tree. He's going to rule the world. And people from all tribes, tongues, and nations are going to obey this king. And he's going to ride a donkey. And poetically, we're told, it's going to be so good when this king rules, you're not even going to wash your clothes with water. You're just going to have wine everywhere. (laughs) It's a poetic picture. You get out your washboard and wash your clothes in wine, not water, because that's how wealthy you are. So much joy, so much prosperity, so much flourishing and peace. You see why everybody's rejoicing? (laughs) The one true king is coming, and he has come. And he's coming in humility with these grand promises to fix everything that is wrong. Now, how's he going to do that? How is he going to kill the warlike spirit in your heart and my heart? Two more jarring contrasts. All right, picture the scene. You've got crowds screaming, rejoicing, celebrating. Jesus riding on the donkey, and as he comes to the city, while everyone's rejoicing, you know what Jesus is doing? Luke 19 tells us, He's crying. He falls apart emotionally. Right, so you have this great king, this all-powerful king, who's ready to do battle with evil, and he begins the battle with tears. Why? And here's the third contrast. The donkey obeys its master. But what about us? Our God... Our donkey obeys Jesus. Jesus looks at Jerusalem and sees stubborn people who don't want to change. And he weeps for them. Because he knows that evil is not a structure. Uh, It's not nailed down to one particular people group. It's, It's running through the heart of every human being, including the people he loves, you and me. I mean, there's a sense where when Jesus enters the city... To defeat evil, he's weeping for you, for me. Because he knows that he can't just fix everything with a sword. He has to die. He has to serve. So you got this picture in your head. Jesus riding a young donkey that had never been tamed. And and this young donkey that had never been tamed is at complete peace with all the noise around them. This is a king who controls nature. The donkey obeys. The donkey's cool with King Jesus. (laughs) What about us? I mean, you could say the crowds are, but we know in in five days they're going to change their tune because Jesus' kingdom tells them they're sinners, and they don't want a savior. They just want a warrior king. They don't want a shepherd lamb. And because Jesus doesn't give them what they want, They get a king who comes in weakness to die rather than a king that comes in strength. They kill him. And that should sound familiar, because that's sin. Sin is at its root. That's what's wrong with the world. It's wrong with us. 
And you see how sin works because it's just our chosen preference to fix what is wrong with the world through strength, through our strength, through our abilities, through our efforts, through winning. It's our insistent, it's our stubborn insistence that we must be in charge to the point where we kick God out of his chair and say, this is mine. And so when Jesus jumped on a donkey to ride in Jerusalem, he's pronouncing not only his claim on you, he's also saying you need a savior and a king. And you really have to feel the disconnect. The donkey obeys its master. Why don't we? Why don't we want to? I mean, Chesterton puts it in a really graphic way. He says, we talk about wild animals. But man really is the only wild animal because it's man that's broken out and disobeyed. Every other animal to God is a tame animal. They do what they were created to do. All other animals are domestic animals, but man alone, people, us, we're alone untamed. And it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or a a prodigal, a messed up sinner. All right. Because what sin is, sin is just this belief deep down in the core of our being that that life, my life, and everyone else's truly, let's be honest, (laughs) everybody's life would be better if I was in charge. And all the pain and hurt flows out of that. We're ready to jump on our metaphorical war horse to make sure people listen. That hurts. But that's why Jesus is weeping he knows you and he knows me. And he knows that uh, our stubborn desire to be in charge is going to put him on the cross. He let us be in charge and we killed God. That the same lust for power and control that is in the heart of the Roman oppressors, well, it infects us religious people too. So this really is the gospel. You have this great king, all-powerful, who sets it down to ride on a donkey for you. That Jesus would willfully volunteer to enter into Jerusalem, signing up to lose. He uses all of his power to die. So that we would see his sacrifice, his courage, his humility, and say, that is a king I want to follow because he loves me. And he knew absolutely everything about me. You know how that'll change you? As you think about it, you're running into a Jesus who is confident and humble at the same time. It'll it'll do the same thing to you. One pastor says, it calls it, you'll become a person of paradoxical royalty. (laughs) Which is just a way of saying you're going to become more confident and more humble at the same time. Because what, what the Christian gospel is designed to do is to make you like Jesus willing to go down to serve the lowest of the low, but also to be called a king and queen. And some of you have much more gentler personalities. You're quieter. This is me too, right? You're you're peer nicer, mainly because we're not taking your stuff. (laughs) We're afraid of failure. We have anxieties. 
But all that, too, is related to our deep need to be in control. And King Jesus, Cosmic King Jesus, he's saying, trust me. I am in control and I am for you. Look at how I fought for you and gave you what you didn't even know to ask for. So what are you worried about? Come out of your shell. Trust me. Admit your weakness. Right? So those of us who are more gentle, he's calling us to be more confident. And those of us who are, um, how do you put this nicely, more in charge types? <laughs> right, those of us who are more confident. When you run into the humility of Jesus, he's saying, look, your power is not there just for you. It's, for, it's to serve. You're being challenged to put away your sword, to learn to listen, to listen to those who are not like you. Because if you listen to the gospel, you probably, potentially, possibly are a much worse person than they are because you're a sinner. Because true greatness is about laying aside your power. So admit your weakness. It's okay. This is a beautiful picture. You're coming into contact with the real Jesus who claims you, but he claims you with, his, with the cross. And that will change you into a much more welcoming person and a much more confident person. Now, last point. It's briefer. More brief, whatever's better English. Right. You have your cosmic king who claims you. You have your gentle king. You've also got a picture here of what the future will be like. Your future king. What his death ultimately came to achieve, which is to create a new world where Jesus rules as king with you, alongside you, among you, and me. <coughs> and it's all wrapped up in the palm branches and the obedience of the donkey. Right, because... All right, palm branches, I mean, it's a way of honoring the king. It's a way of celebrating. But it's also a poetic thing because uh, the scriptures foretold a day that would come when the trees themselves, when the rightful king comes, they're going to clap. They're going to sing for joy. All right, and then Luke says if people weren't celebrating Jesus coming, then even the rocks would cry out in joy because this king is going to fix everything. So Psalm 96 says, let this tree sing for joy. Isaiah 55 says, let them clap their hands. And then it says the mountains and hills are going to join the victory parade. And it's this just poetic way of saying that when Jesus comes back as king, right, he came once as a suffering servant. When he comes back as king to right all wrongs, it's going to look like this. Only better. You're going to have people with hearts renewed and restored, perfect, who actually love this Jesus as he is. And to join them will be the animals, the trees, the hills. It's a, all of creation is going to rejoice at the power and kindness of this king. Right. I mean, just think about it. You're going to be a part of that crowd, rejoicing. No longer will you ever have to sing, I'm prone to leave the Lord I love. Your heart's going to burst forth with love for this king because you're going to see his crucified hands. 
And Samuel Rutherford said, I'm not going to gaze at glory, but I'm going to look at my king of grace. I'm not going to stare at the crown he gives, but I'm going to look at his pierced hand. Because the lamb, the suffering savior, is all the glory in heaven in Emmanuel's land. And the beauty of it is we're going to be made right eternally and all of creation is going to come along with us. The hills, the trees, everybody's going to praise the king of heaven and earth. And so just use your sanctified imagination and this is how we'll end. If trees can gain the ability to clap and sing, right? they don't move except in the stories. How much different will you be? How, uh, you know, you're right now we use 1% of our brains. What's it going to be like to have a full 100% functioning in worship? You know, right now you, the animals look at us. I mean, dogs look at us because they want us to feed them, and they do love us some. But you go out into nature, right? If you've hunted, you know this. As soon as you sit down, you have the chipmunks and squirrels just yelling at you. But really, they're mad because we've broken the world as bad managers of, of bad stewards of God's creation. But when the rifle king comes, it's going to be like Adam once again. The animals are going to come to us. <laughs> they're going to trust us. We're going to be in a new creation. Right? We're going to be lords of this creation with Christ our cosmic king. And so when you read the Psalms, this is what I would encourage you to do. This is your homework. So it begins in Psalm 2. And it says, we need a king. And we need a king that's going to deal with their stubborn hearts. Take refuge in God's king. That's Jesus. But you get to the end. From Psalm 146 to 150, it's all praise. And it's the hills. Uh, it is the trees. It's the birds. I mean, it's the cattle, the wild animals. <laughs> we will all be as God has intended us to be. And we're all going to be saying, because of the cross of Christ, that is a king I would follow. So I'll, I'll quote from Psalm 50, 150. Let us praise King Jesus along with the sun and moon, the shining stars, the mountains, the hills, the wild animals, and all the cattle along with all the nations to sing a new song, to rejoice in our maker and be glad in our king. And this king takes delight in you because he's also a king of grace who's forgiven absolutely everything through his victory, through weakness. So go and learn what that means. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, you we bombarded our senses with who Jesus is. And so I pray that your spirit would take what is true and convict us of our sin and show us the way of the cross that we too would submit joyfully to the one who loves us more than we can imagine. So make us like him, a people who are both bold and humble. In Jesus' name, amen.